0: Good morning, I thank the Lord for sprinkles, I thank the Lord for showers and for storms. I don't think you got cheated, Christine, from uh, having just a sprinkle for your, uh, for your birth. Let's um, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We're continuing our study By way of review, two weeks ago we, uh, we heard about the Antichrist, the beast from the sea in chapter 13, and um, uh, the Antichrist is um, true to his name, he's against the Lord Jesus, he's powered by Satan, he attains worldwide dominion during the tribulation. um, He's a blasphemer of God, and he seeks to overthrow the Lord in in all that the Lord is doing, and um, he wants to receive worship as the Lord. That's been um, Satan's goal uh, from uh, Isaiah 14, And, um, and so the Antichrist has that as his ambition to receive worship as God. Last week, we heard about the false prophet. He's the second beast rising out of the earth or out of land. He, is, um, he derives his authority from the Antichrist. He, um, midway through the tribulation, sets up the abomination of desolation. That is uh, an idol in the temple, and he requires people to bow down to it, to worship it. One of the prominent characteristics of the tribulation is deception. We hear of Satan's deception in um, Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Satan um, wouldn't get very far with honesty. Um, He's... um, such a despicable being, and so he deceives. He's a master of deception. Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, "Um, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan is, um, is a great deceiver. The false prophet, the um, beast who comes uh, up from the earth, uh, we read, read last week, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. So here's more deception. Deception seems true today in the church age. People don't heed warnings against it, and they seem quite comfortable with it. Um, The uh, saying attributed to Abraham Lincoln 150 years ago, uh, Abraham Lincoln was speaking about politics, he said, you can fool some of the people all the time, you can fool all of the people some of the time, and um, how, how well this applies to the spiritual state of people today. They're fooled, they're deceived. Well, we'd like to shift gears this morning and um, read about some good examples in Scripture, the 144,000. Before we dive into our text, I want to test your powers of observation. And so I'm going to ask Nat if he would cycle through three photographs, just a few seconds, five or ten seconds on each one. Your, Your task is to find commonalities between these three photographs. Very different photographs. Find the commonalities here. What do you see? Teamwork. Good. OK, great. They're, uh, teamwork. Expand on that a little bit. What, what about teamwork? Together. OK. They're definitely a cohesive group, they're, um, they're, uh, what does that mean, that they're together in one? They have one what? One mission. They've got one mission, they've got one goal, one pursuit that they're after. Very good, it's a group, they've got one goal, what else? They're <laughs> all They're all young, Howard says, okay. I tried to pick a diverse selection here. One, one more thing we're looking for in these. Keep cycling through that if you would. They're, willing? they're what? Willing? Yeah, they're, um, they're volunteers, they're, they're willing Let me help out here. There's one person who stands out in each photograph. A leader, okay? A coach, a teacher, a, a company commander. So here's, here's a group. Um, we might add that they are all achievers. They've, um, they've achieved uh, perhaps their goal. And um, yeah, so it's a group uh, with a common goal, with a, uh, with a leader that they're following. And um, what we want to do this morning is to look at a virtual photograph in Revelation 14. The Lord presents a photograph to us of the 144,000 workers. They, um, uh, uh, the Lord is recognizing them for their achievement. With that, let's, open, uh, let's go ahead and read Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion... And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We'll look at the passage in three headings this morning. Uh, we want to uh, recognize the 144,000, that's the first. There's the song of the 144,000. And then there are some distinguishing traits or characteristics or qualities of the 144,000. John begins this portion, Then I looked and behold. John is a faithful witness in a very personal, very profound way. As we read through the book of Revelation, we find him using the phrase, I looked 12 times. Behold, 25 times. I heard 26 times. I saw 35 times. John is a a faithful witness. He's reporting the things that he heard, and saw. The setting this morning is on Mount Zion. It's a fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 14.4 that the Lord would stand on the Mount of Olives. The time is after the tribulation. This is um, a scene after the Lord's return to earth. The Lord is there on Mount Zion with the 144,000 and he's beginning his thousand year reign. (coughs) The subject is the lamb and his 144,000 workers, followers. Who were they? That is, who are they? That is, who will they be? They're not yet. Several months ago, Noad, preached on Revelation 7, gave an excellent introduction to the 144,000. Last month, Don emailed a um, study guide listing all the characters of the book of Revelation, and I recommend both to you. They're good helps. They supply some of the detail that we're just not able to cover this morning. So we we know from Revelation 7 that the 144,000 are servants of God, that's, what, uh, uh, that's what, how John describes them. They're servants of our God. The 12,000 uh, each from the 12 tribes of Israel make up the 144,000. They are sealed on their foreheads for special ministry. What does the seal indicate? Good, okay. (laughs) Uh, You put a seal on something that you own. You put a seal on something that you're protecting. And um, the timing of the appearance of the 144,000 seems to match the prophecy in Matthew 24, verse 14, that this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. What's the mission of the 144,000? It's to preach the gospel to the lost in the tribulation. These these workers appear before the time of the abomination of desolation, which uh, is uh, placed in the temple at the midpoint, at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. uh, because they've got this seal, uh, they enjoy the Lord's fruitfulness in preaching. Revelation 7, we read, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We understand um, by this description that we're talking mostly of Gentiles, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Although many Jews will be saved. All told, as we, uh, as Noad pointed out in his uh, message on Chapter 7, there will be millions of Gentiles saved, thousands of Jews. The tribulation takes on a drastically different tone because of the special mission, the special ministry of these saints. Pentecost, in his book, um, Things to Come, calls them standard bearers of the faith, standard bearers, the ones who who hold the, uh, the flag, the standard in an incredibly difficult time of history. Okay, you're, you're thinking now, um, why are the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? It's a time of honor. It's a time of recognition. The lamb is appreciating his workers for their faithfulness. It was a hazardous assignment. We're going to find out um, a little using our sanctified imaginations just how hazardous that was. These hundred and forty-four thousand occupy a special place in the Lord's heart, as did Moses in Deuteronomy five. The Lord sent Israel back to their tents. He said, "Uh, "Go back to your tents," but Moses, as for you, stand here by me. Stand here by me. The Lord seems to have offered these 144,000 as examples for us for the past 1,900 years. What's the significance of having the Father's name written on their foreheads? We've, um, We've seen that it was a seal of ownership, of possession. The Lord owns these men as his workers. They, uh, it was, uh, again, for their protection. The Lord was not going to allow them to be killed. And what a contrast with the mark of the beast back in chapter 13, the, um, in verses 15 through 17. Uh, the, um, the beast, the false prophet Requires all to uh, to receive the mark either on their right hand or on their foreheads. No one may buy or sell except who has the mark or the name of the beast. Well, John heard a voice from heaven in verse 2 like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. What does the voice signify? It doesn't say. John doesn't tell us, but we can safely assume that it was approval, God's well done, you 144,000. You have done well in your special service. The voice of many waters, we might compare to Yosemite at full flow. Years ago, uh, I was at Yosemite and I was excited because it was spring and uh, it had been a, a big winter and... So I wondered what Yosemite Falls looked like. So we, we walked down toward the falls and I could hear, somebody had started a jet engine. <laughs> this roar. <laughs> well, there are no jet engines at Yosemite Valley. We approached the falls and it was the falls. They were just roaring. And uh, so we we understand um, what John means by uh, voice of many waters being very powerful, dominating, um, arresting. And yet, uh, it's many waters. It's not just Yosemite Falls. It's something maybe like Niagara Falls. Imagine trying to hold a, a conversation with uh, your your spouse at the base of the falls. Dear, how was your day today? What? What? When the Lord uh, When the Lord speaks, uh, he's going to drown out uh, the other voices. Ezekiel said, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. John says it's like the voice of loud thunder. Jesus prayed in... John 12, he said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. The voice of God was so powerful um, as he thunders his approval that we can't help but hear. That's really the recognition of The 144,000, John, um, at the end of verse 2, he talks about the um, the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Though the scene is on uh, Mount Zion, John could hear the harpists as they sang before the throne of God. It was a new song that the harpist played, not meaning contemporary versus traditional, but rather new in that it was different. It was um, oriented toward the the singer's experience. It expresses something about what the singer has endured or enjoyed. And um, we have the example of the, the nation of Israel crossing the Red Sea after they They crossed, in um, Exodus 15, they sang a new song. A song that had never been sung before because of the experience they had of God's deliverance. The same idea in Judges 5, when Deborah and Barak sing after their conquest of the Philistines, they sing a new song. The song that the harpists sing Uh, we believe to be related to that of Revelation 5. When he, that is our Lord Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. There was a missionary who um, was uh, going through a marketplace, whether he was shopping or, or what, but he was singing. And um, he got to the end of the song, and the, the natives and the nationals said, don't stop, sing another song. <laughs> And the missionary said, well, you sing first. And they thought, and they said, we have no song to sing. We have a song to sing. It's praise to our God. As um, the psalmist said, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. We as redeemed of the Lord have a song to sing. Well, um, John indicates that uh, no one could learn that song except the 144,000. What's so unique about the 144,000 that no one else could learn it? Though God had sealed them so as to protect them through the tribulation, these 144,000 endured tremendous hardship. There was a scarcity of food. The third seal judgment of Revelation 6 showed how how expensive food, simple staples um, would be. And so, These 144,000 are not uh, overweight. They're not fat on the Lord's special provision. They're suffering right along with uh, those who are starving. There was a lack of water. God's third trumpet judgment in Revelation 8. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men, not of the 144,000, died from the water because it was made bitter. You're called to labor, but you don't have food, you don't have water. You're suffering right with the sufferers. There was the threat of satanic oppression. The persecution, the prophet, the false prophet had dictated that whoever didn't worship the image of the beast would be killed. So you're being hunted. There's the loss of loved ones and believers whom the beast and his followers would kill. My family, my friends, um, my converts, those, uh, those Gentiles who responded to the gospel, they believe in the Lord Jesus. They were beheaded for the cause of Christ. Compare the privations of these servants with those of the Apostle Paul in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Yeah, they suffered. Paul has a deep concern for all the churches, overriding uh, all the physical and mental suffering. The church, by way of reminder, is not here in the tribulation. Okay, So the compassion, the concern for the 144,000 is not for their churches but for their converts because the church has been raptured. The 144,000 were sealed by the Lord, but theirs was still a life of trusting his promises, taking his word to heart, stepping out in faith. Another, um, another way they suffered was the desperation of lawlessness, The restrainer had been removed. Men and women acted out their passions without restraint. Revelation 9 tells us the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship uh, demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What an environment. Difficult. So those are some of the things that they suffered and that's what made their song so rich is that they, um, they were able to endure by God's grace, by his strength, they were able to endure the sufferings. But there was another part of the song uh, that they sang, and it was in the um, wonderful privilege of partaking of the Lord's ingathering. He's, he's ingathering a multitude that can't be counted. Millions of Gentiles, thousands of Jews coming to the Lord, and uh, these evangelists, are they're preaching, they're, um, they're communicating one-on-one, and they're seeing, seeing men and women uh, uh, coming to Christ. Time is short. Psalm 40 uh, reads, it's Psalm 40, verse 3, uh, something of the evangelist's joy. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust the Lord. Many will trust the Lord. Well, We understand the identity of the 144,000. We have uh, uh, thought some about their song. What were some of the qualities, what were some of the traits that um, these 144,000 shared in common? We, um, We begin reading of those at the end of verse three. First and primarily, they were, are, will be redeemed. To redeem is to purchase. Vine in his dictionary defines this word redeemed as um, uh, spoken of Christ as of having, uh, he having bought his redeemed, making them his property at the price of his blood. So uh, Christ has redeemed sinners at the price of his blood. uh, He's made them his. He's purchased them. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter writes in, uh, in his first letter, he says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, when, uh, when we entered life, we inherited from our forefathers our empty lifestyle, our eternal uselessness, our spiritual ineffectiveness. We inherited that from our uh, forefathers. Worse, our original father, Abraham, um, (laughs) Adam, sold us into slavery. He transferred his, uh, uh, his servanthood from the Lord to Satan, and we've inherited that as well. That's that's part of our makeup. In our natural state, we are servants to Satan's orders and slaves to sin. But Jesus paid the price to purchase us from that uh, slave market, from Satan's uh, domain, and to give us purpose and hope of uh, safe eternity. Each of us, I'm sorry, each of the 144,000 came to Jesus in a personal way. Each had his uh, redemption story to tell. Each had to receive Christ in order to enter into the good of Christ's payment for their sin. Without trusting Christ, there could be no special service. No, No seal, no name of the Father written on their foreheads. No new song, no uh, evangelistic joy, but each had to be redeemed personally. In whose service are you today? If you have not entered the Lord Jesus' service, receive him as your redeemer. Enter into the purchase price that he paid on the cross of Calvary, and he will give you purpose and confidence in your eternal safety. We read in verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. We can offer three interpretations or applications of this quality of the 144,000. The first is that they were not sexually immoral. The writer of Hebrews says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. We don't understand God or his holiness if we engage in sexual immorality and think that we're going to serve him. Sorry, the two don't work together. Second interpretation is that um, the 144,000 are not distracted by marriage responsibilities. Walford, in his um, uh, commentary on Revelation, he said they abstained from marriage in the critical days of the tribulation when a normal marital life would be impossible. You remember the, the, um, the privation, the trials that these 144,000 went through, it was just not possible to um, be married, to raise a family, and so these, uh, these whom the Lord sealed were not defiled with women, they were virgins. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Uh, what would especially apply to these 144,000. He said, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. So they're not sexually immoral. They're not distracted by marriage. Third interpretation is um, they are spiritually pure. The apostle Paul Again, wrote the Corinthians, he said, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul equated this this purity, this um, chastity, with uh, simplicity that is in Christ. It was a single heartedness, it was um, uh, a devotion to the Lord Jesus. He emphasized spiritual faithfulness as um, comparing it to a bride's faithfulness to her betrothed. The 144,000 kept themselves pure in a world that was morally filthy. Thinking along Jewish lines, in 2 Kings 19, the Lord referred to Israel as the virgin daughter of Zion. And he would rebuke the nation and judges calling their unfaithfulness, disobedience, and idolatry, spiritual harlotry. They were, um, they were not faithful, as a wife should be faithful to her husband. Well, they... Um, They were not defiled with women. A third uh, third trait, third quality in uh, verse 4 is that they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Interesting word, follow. It means to be one who's going in the same way. It's used 77 times in the Gospels, follow, and all but one is of following Jesus In John John 12, uh, the Lord said, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Such following suggests unquestioning obedience, loyalty, and courage. A poet wrote, O Master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service free. Tell me thy secret, help me bear the strain of toil, the fret of care. Teach me thy patience, still with thee, in closer, dearer company, in work that keeps faith sweet and strong, in trust that triumphs over wrong. In our following the Lord, may we not be like the horse or mule that has to be harnessed with a bit or bridle, or they will not come near you. Follow. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Where does the lamb go? In the context of this scripture, he goes to the lost. Jesus told Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In our worship this morning, we looked at 1 Timothy 1 and uh, read, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And to his followers, he commands in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Where does Jesus go? Where does the Lamb go? Where do I follow? Well, he's going to the lost. He's he's preaching the gospel to them. A fourth trait of these men is that they were redeemed. Again, each had met the Savior by saving faith. Each had his own personal redemption experience. As we we look through, uh, through the scripture from... Genesis to to the end of time, to Revelation, we realize that um, no one is saved except as redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Some saved on credit. Some saved right there at the cross. We who look back at the cross are saved by the same blood of the Lamb. And so we, um, we have no other way to service to serve the Lord, except uh, starting with redemption, being in a right relationship with him. We, um, we may try. We may do a lot of um, what we think are good works, but um, they're really done in the, uh, in the power of the flesh and of the devil. Fifth. Fifth. We read in verse 4, they are first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Pentecost um, explains that the 144,000 are the first of the harvest of the tribulation period that will come into the millennium to populate the millennial earth. Think it through. God seals the 144,000 workers. They are his evangelists. They go out and preach the gospel, and others are saved. Who was first in this process? Well, it was the 144,000. They're the first fruits. They will survive the tribulation. They will enter the millennium. They will live uh, with Christ as, on his throne there in, uh, during the millennium. Sixth, in their mouth was found no deceit. There was no falsehood or false religion in these 144,000. They will have been faithful witnesses in the midst of apostasy. My temptation is to um, side with those who name the name of Jesus without really vetting, vetting them, without really finding out what they mean, what, um, okay, so you call yourself a follower of the Lamb, but uh, who is Jesus? And um, let them let them talk and talk and talk, and um, they're either going to confirm their relationship with the Lord Jesus, or they're going to identify themselves as deceived and false. So uh, there are those who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus. There are those who seek to add to the the price that Jesus paid, they said, well, surely I must do something toward my salvation. I must uh, must merit, I must earn my salvation, Um, but this is is the mark of the enemies of the Lord. Paul warned the Corinthians, he said, um, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We should not compliment these these people in their error. But um, as, uh, as Paul exhorted the Corinthians, come out from among them and be separate. Uh, seventh quality is that they were without fault before the throne of God. Bill McDonald, in his commentary, says, uh, explains they were blameless as far as their steadfast confession of Christ was concerned. How important is the life and testimony of the believer who seeks to imitate the 144,000 in their special service? We'd like to be like them, but how important is that spiritual purity, that, um, that relationship with the Lord? Uh, they did not compromise with error. They guarded their spiritual purity. A word of warning to those who wait. Someone says, um, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to trust the Lord. I'll wait till the tribulation. Then I'll know that that the Lord is serious. Paul told the Thessalonians that those who do not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, are going to uh, believe the lie of Satan. Once the church is raptured, the believers are gone. God's going to allow delusion. He's going to allow the lie of Satan to enter those. They heard the gospel, okay? They understand the gospel. They just don't have time. It's just not, uh, I got things to do before I trust the Lord. Well, if you wait until after the rapture, you've denied the truth, you're going to receive the lie. Okay? Okay? There's no there's no waiting. The rapture is imminent, could happen this afternoon. If you wait, it's too late. You who hear the gospel, you who deny the the truth, it's too late. Trust the Lord Jesus. He's waiting for you. He wants you. He wants you to be among his redeemed. He paid the price on the cross of Calvary. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He did everything that you need for salvation, for safety, for eternity with him. To those who follow the Lamb today, protect your purity. Be uncompromising in your confession of the Lord Jesus Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Amen. We praise You this morning, as a Lamb who redeems His followers with Your own blood, Lord. We um, we thank You for the example of these hundred forty-four thousand. They're an amazing group, and um, we uh, we rightfully envy them in their uh, their approval, their um, the the satisfaction, the appreciation that you have for them as pictured here in in chapter 14. So we ask, Lord, that um, you'd remind us this week, uh, no compromise, uh, to guard our purity and to follow you wherever you go. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.